Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. One of the biggest influences on my life was my experience at an all-girls boarding school in Adelaide. For many reasons, it was wildly different from the country high school that I left behind. But what I wanted to explore today is how to lead a team which is dominated by women. To do this, I've gone to the accomplished Vice-Chancellor of Charles Sturt University, Renee Leon. Renee graduated from the Australian National University with a double degree in arts and law. And she was awarded the Sir Robert Menzies Memorial Scholarship in Law, leading to a Master's in Law from Cambridge. She held senior roles in the ACT Public Service and was awarded the Public Service Medal in 2013. She served as Deputy Secretary of the Department of Attorney General and in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. She served on the boards of the National Australia Day Council and was a member of the Council of the Order of Australia. In 2013, Renee was appointed Secretary of the Department of Employment and later headed up what is now called Services Australia before moving to academia. So in this episode, we talk about how to lift the capability of your team and how to lead in a feminised workplace. Renee, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Hello, Helen. Really pleased to be here. I just have to start with asking you what it's like living in the bush. You had such a long career in Canberra and now you're working and living in Bathurst and Orange. Is that correct? I'm based in Bathurst, but Charles Sturt University has campuses up and down the length of New South Wales, but all regional. So I spend my time living in Bathurst and travelling to Wagga and Albury and Orange and Dubbo and sometimes Port Macquarie. So it's a central west, mostly campus footprint. It's great. It's wonderful. Bathurst's a lovely town. Orange has all of the wineries and boutiques a girl could want. But mainly, I'm here for the job. I'm here for the organisation that I'm working for. And so that's really where I spend my time is at the university. Is working in academia something you imagined or planned for? I didn't ever imagine it because academia has been a place that only really recruits from within. So until last year when both Mark Scott now at Sydney University, and I were recruited as vice-chancellors, pretty well all the vice-chancellors came from an academic background. And so it's been unusual to have people come into academia at senior levels from more diverse backgrounds. So it wasn't something I thought was remotely likely to happen for me. But I have to say that given my career has been motivated completely by public service, really, and by seeking to be involved in 
organisations and activities that serve the public good and that make a difference in the world, then academia is a really good fit because it's a large, complex organisation like others that I've led and its purpose is wholly for the public good in the building skills that we need, educating the next generation, growing knowledge through research and contributing to local communities. It is all public good. As you know, the purpose of this podcast is to kind of draw out some of the challenges and insights from the careers of remarkable people like yourself. What were the challenges in making such a shift from working in the public sector, in the national capital, in a career that you'd excelled at for a considerable amount of time to moving to such a high-profile role that's completely different and a different part of the country. Can you tell us about that transition and what you learned about transitions and maybe even what you learned about yourself? So first of all, I would say that elements of leadership are the same, whatever the organisation. And so there's been some constants, irrespective of whether I'm in a public service department whether I'm in the Commonwealth or the state, whether I'm in the Attorney General's Department or Services Australia, or whether I'm in a university, there are some constants about leadership that are true threads running through all of that and probably the ones that I would say are most significant for me in my current role are the importance of having a clear vision of where the organisation's going and making that vision clear and meaningful to all the staff, whatever their role is, that they can see how they contribute to that vision and to achieving that. Um, secondly, investing in the capability of the people. I know it's such a truism, but you honestly can't achieve anything in an organisation unless you've got great people, engagement and capability. And so investing in leadership so that you've got good joined up understanding of what we need to do and where we're going to go and the ability to inspire and motivate staff to come on the journey and the capability to collaborate and to innovate, they're all skills that you only get by investing in the capability of the people and that's the same in the public service or in academia. And I guess the third constant I would say from all of them is you just have to focus on a few things, not try and fix everything. You can't achieve big, hairy, audacious goals if you're taking a really scattergun approach and, and picking up every rock and doing something different every day. You have to focus on the big things and keep yourself and your team motivated towards those and not get distracted by the daily crises. So I guess that's the, here's all the things that are the same. The part about the transition that I think's both has been, you know, most challenging in a way for me, though not surprising, um, but also a really good realisation for every leader to have is that, of course, there's a lot I don't know about academia, a lot that I didn't know when I started, a lot more that I know now, but I'm much more conscious than one is in a context of great familiarity, I'm much more conscious that I'm on a learning journey myself. And it's a good thing for a leader to have that experience because one of the risks you face as a 
experienced senior leader is that you start to feel that you know the answers. And of course, you never do know all the answers. You end up with really good sense and judgment about what this situation means or what I should do in this kind of situation. And your judgment is usually pretty good because you've been in those situations many times before, but it is not infallible. And it's good to be in a situation where you can't just rely on your feel for the context to know what to have to do because it takes you back to being attentive to the context that you're in, listening to the people who know more about it, understanding the history, asking others for ideas. All of that's really good for senior leaders to do because otherwise you get too confident that you already know the answers and that way lies danger. So they've been the things that have been some the same, some different. And I feel like some of the things that are different about academia are interesting and worthy and I should build on them and integrate them. And some of the things that are different in academia, I actually think I can bring some change and freshness and innovation to that will be good for the university. So I hope that's what I'll be achieving. Can we just dwell on that discomfort for a moment? When did you first realise that you were, I guess, in an uncomfortable, unfamiliar space? Was it from the very beginning or was it sort of at the end where you realised you had that heightened sense of awareness and that you were really having to dig deep to listen to others? I I knew from the beginning. I knew from the beginning it would feel that way and I thought that I would, so in my fantasy about taking this job, I suppose I thought I'd say yes to the job, but not start for a few months so I could do a deep immersion in higher education policy and funding and regulation and talk to other people who I knew who had been in or were in universities and take myself on a lengthy orientation tour so that I'd arrive a bit more ready to hit the ground running. But in fact, after I agreed to take the role, the university asked if I could start in two weeks. So... My fantasy of a self-guided immersion tour had to then be rolled into, oh, start in two weeks. (laughs) Wow. So I knew that I would be starting from a base of, of course, understanding in a broad sense the sweep of higher education policy over recent decades simply by having been a, a senior Commonwealth public servant. So I knew the general tenor of what was happening in higher education policy. But of course, I hadn't ever worked in a university and I knew that I didn't know its rhythms and its sensitivities and its cultural holy cows and, you know, all of those things that in the public service, I knew how it worked and I knew who was who and I knew what things mattered and what things didn't matter so much. And so I knew that I was coming into academia without any of that broad contextual understanding and that I would just have to rely on others a lot. And so I've made that clear to the staff from the beginning. I've said, you know, in my first kind of all staff messages and my engagement with peers and colleagues that I come from a lot of leadership experience in large and complex organisations with many customers and stakeholders. And so I think I know my way around that. And I hope that I can bring some skills from that that'll be useful to the university. 
but that I also recognise they know much more than me about the nuances of higher education and the history of how we got to where we are and the possibilities that we can achieve that will benefit the university and its community. And that, of course, I want their involvement, input, engagement into all of that, which every leader, however familiar with the context, should always be seeking anyway, because the people at the front line of your organisation always know the most about what's really going on. So it's good for me to make sure that I've got a real motivation, even more than usual, to listen to them and to be humble with them about what I know and what I don't know. I recognise that there'd be other settings where the skills that I need might be too technical that I actually wouldn't be able to just use my generic capabilities of organisational management and knowledge of policy and regulation. And there are some aspects of the university where the knowledge is very technical. And so I say, don't give this decision to me. In fact, there are lots of things in the university that come up to the Vice-Chancellor to clear as if this couldn't possibly be right unless the Vice-Chancellor's cleared it, that in fact require technical knowledge of a particular discipline and therefore they should be decided at that level. So I'm very much into pushing decision-making to the level where the expertise lies and it's only if it is engaging my particular expertise, which is about what's going to be essential for the organisation to achieve its strategic vision, yes, that can come up to me, but after people who are the subject matter experts have ironed out the things that need technical expertise. And that's a skill that should be applied in every leadership situation. Have you ever snapped? I doubt that you have, but have you ever snapped and said, I don't care that that's the way you've always done it. We're going to do it differently. I haven't snapped and said it, but I've certainly said that a lot. (laughs) Good. I mean, I am saying it in a way that I'm trying to engender an attitude of openness to change. And I think this is one of the superpowers of the public service, even though they probably don't get as much credit for it as they should, given the stereotypes about us being all stuck in the past or something. But the public service does routinely go through major change upheavals, not of its own choosing. Every time there's a change of government or even a change of minister, departments get reorganised, the priorities change, the budget gets cut up and moved around, and the public service just rises to the challenge, reformats itself and gets on with whatever the new priorities are with barely raising a sweat. And I would like to just pause for a moment there and celebrate that change capability that I realise I took for granted in my public service life. There are plenty of large organisations that do not think change is a good thing and that do not know how to do it very well and therefore haven't had enough practice at seeing how you can make change, large or small, and make things better and focus yourself on a new priority and set out to achieve it and be thrilled by the result. Comfortableness with change is one of the foundational pieces of work I'm doing in the university and getting the capability in leaders of how to lead change well because they're really fundamental capabilities that every organisation needs. The world is not standing still around us and so we cannot stand still in the face of that. Renee, what sort of leader are you? 
So I suppose my people would be the best to comment on that because it's always hard to, you know, hold the mirror up to yourself. But (laughs) I would say that the kind of leader I try to be is one that is very focused on setting and guiding us towards the big picture outcomes that we're trying to achieve because that's the first and most important thing that we have to do is each organisation will have half a dozen things that it must achieve either what we call business as usual, you know, for us, teaching and research, we must be doing those, or goals you're trying to achieve by way of change, you know, like uplift our research capability or grow our international student partnerships. So either way, there'll be, for any organisation, a few big picture things that you're trying to achieve. And so I see my role very much as keeping us all focused on those, not getting lost in the weeds that otherwise will overtake you. I put a big focus on getting the right people into leadership roles or uplifting the capability of those that are already in them. That's, I think, my signature style as a leader. And those strategic goals that I'm constantly pointing everyone to will only be achieved with engaged and motivated staff because they're the ones who actually do the legwork. So I hope people would say that I am a a people-focused leader in the sense that I am busy building the capability that will make their working lives satisfying and engaging. And that's because I'm investing in leadership at all levels and investing in the capability of staff. And that I'm not down in the weeds all the time telling them what to do. I'm asking them, you're the experts, how can we achieve this goal? We've all agreed that's the goal. You tell me what are the three things we could do that would get us there. Mm-hmm. So when you say capability, I'm confident you've got some skills that you expect of your leadership team. And so what are they? And then how do you go about lifting them in those particular skills? So I'm looking for the, the, the nitty gritty here. So I expect them to be able to translate the strategic goals into meaningful relationship to the work that my team does. So each team should be able to say that their supervisor or their manager has made clear to them, not just once, but as a regular part of allocating work and, you know, prioritising what we do rather than what we don't do and what resources we spend on what, that all of that's always being related to because these are the things that the organisation's trying to achieve and this is our part of it. The second thing that they have to be good at is communication. They have to be good at communicating messages down so that it's not enough for the VC or the CEO to say, here's the three things that matter to us as an organisation because people will read that in my VC message and then they'll forget it a week later. But they need their own team leader, their own local manager to be embedding that strategic communication or that message from senior leadership into the daily work of the team. So good communication down and good listening skills. They need to know how things are in their team and be able to listen to the concerns that people have and either work out for themselves how to explain why we're doing it that way or how to resolve the concerns locally. Or if they need action further up, they have to be able to exercise a judgment about whether these concerns 
are ones that senior management should know about because it means there is an actual problem or they're concerns that mean they haven't really brought their team along on the journey and they really should deal with that. And then the third skill is sideways lateral collaboration. So I really expect in both public service or universities that no one is blaming another part of the organisation for things. No one is just throwing stuff over the fence in a way that doesn't pay attention to the needs and priorities of other areas. In any large and complex organisation, absolutely no area can achieve its goals on its own. You just can't. All of it is going to be a collegiate effort. So you've got to have good relationship skills. You've got to build bridges with other people at your level who you know you're going to be working with on things and become familiar with their priorities and their foibles and their needs and make sure they're familiar with yours and build all of that foundation before you need to ask them for something. Because there's no point, you know, knocking on your neighbour's door and asking if they'll mind your house and feed your dogs if you've never bothered to talk to them and be friends with them. So it's the same at work. You have to build relationships with colleagues across and outside the organisation so that, you know, there's a basis of trust and cooperation. And then you have to come good on that in that you work collaboratively with them when there's issues that cross your boundaries and that you need to solve together. So they're probably the three really specific things I'd say I expect from leaders across the organisation. And of course, I expect them to execute and to have the capabilities to allocate resources, monitor implementation, intervene to keep things on track. I wanted to explore some of the challenges you might have had when working in feminised workplaces. So you headed up Services Australia or what was then the Department of Human Services. Tell me, did you encounter any particular challenges in that environment that, you know, you needed to adjust your leadership style to manage? Well, I think the only problems, if I can put problems in inverted commas, of feminised workplaces that I've encountered are actually structural problems that come from outside, not problems of the workplace itself. So the two that I can think of that are common problems in feminised workforces is highly feminised workforce, except for the senior positions, which are all men. <laughs> so that to me is a structural problem that comes from outside. And the second is that feminised workforces are often less well paid than, you know, workforces frequented by more men. And so you have an attraction and retention problem of your good people because you can't offer as high a salary as you could if you were in, you know, somewhere that's um, sadly more masculine workforces seem to all get more higher salaries. So the experiences that I had in human services, which is about 70% female, I should say that it's not as though you ever felt like you were in a workforce with hardly any men because that still meant there were 10,000 men. You know, it was a big workplace and I don't think we ever felt that we lacked the ability to attract, you know, great men to work in the organisation. But I did put quite a bit of effort into ensuring that we had gender equity approaches to all the key organisational things we did. So 
I had gender disaggregated data about who's at which level in the organisation, who's getting paid what, who gets the training opportunities, what are the performance appraisal outcomes by gender. And that way you can monitor yourself to see whether as an organisation you are falling into any traps that go with how you treat your female workers and how you treat your male workers. So I think the leadership that you should bring to any organisation is the same, whether it's highly feminised or not. But for organisations that are highly masculinised, I think there are challenges that they need to address about the kind of cultures that evolve in those contexts. Yeah, it's just such an interesting area because it comes up quite often when I'm training or mentoring women in big organisations which are highly feminised. Whereas I run a medium-sized business with all women apart from one man and it certainly has a different culture but I don't feel like I have any particular leadership challenges at all Mm. that would be unique you know, in a, in a gender sense. Um, and it might just be a volume issue. There's a kind of stereotyped view that gets around that women are more empathetic, compassionate, communicative leaders than men and that men are more egotistical, competitive and cutthroat, something like that. I don't think anyone has solved the nature versus nurture debate yet. So I'm not going to try to. But I will say that I don't think there is anything inherent about being either competitive or collaborative by gender because we've all known plenty of competitive and cutthroat women leaders and we've also known empathetic and compassionate male leaders, so it's apparent that it's not determined by gender. But we do live in a culture that has, by and large, done more rewarding of compassion by girls and competition by boys that each of us, as we come to understand our own strengths and weaknesses, have to just be willing to look at the extent to which our behaviour has been conditioned by the overall gender-biased upbringing that we've undoubtedly all had to one degree or another. And that's the part where I think you will sometimes find that in organisations that are heavily one way or the other, that you'll find that social conditioning about gendered behaviour, if you don't attend to it, it starts to predominate. So that's the approach I take about all of my leaders. I recruit male or female people to senior positions. I'm agnostic about it. So long as they all meet my essential criteria that they are collaborative and that they are inspiring and motivating leaders. And so if men come in, or women for that matter, come in bringing a lot of ego and my way or the highway and I want to win at the cost of others, then they won't get a place in my organisation. That's just how it is because that's not the kind of leadership I want. So if I think about the clients that sign up for the Future Women Leadership Training, they are never, ever 
organisations with predominantly women. They're only ever organisations that either have a 60-40 or, you know, like either more men than women. And so there's a, you know, there are challenges and we won't go into the fixing women Mm. argument. But why would that be the case? Well, it's possible that the organisations that are majority men and that at least are motivated to change, that's why they've come to you, Mm. can see that they have allowed and enabled a whole lot of mostly masculine behaviour that's not helpful to them. And it's not helpful to them for attracting and retaining women either. I mean, we've had public service departments that I won't name, but some of you might be able to guess, that had very heavily skewed male leadership cohorts. And the women who've worked there who are in a minority find themselves frequently mansplained, spoken over, having ideas that they present ignored until one of the men presents them, being asked to make the coffee or do the minutes, all sorts of just poor behaviour towards women that all the men around the table mostly think seems perfectly normal and okay, so it keeps reinforcing itself. And so I imagine if an organisation starts to realise that they've got a problem with attracting and retaining women and then turns a bit of a lens on itself to realise that they've got some things they need to change, that's why they come to an organisation like yours to try and help them address their mindsets. Whereas the kind of behaviour that I'm trying to encourage around collaboration and communication probably doesn't come quite so hard to as many women leaders because we've all been trained as girls to listen to others and to play nicely. And so there we are, bringing that into our leadership. But when I came to human services, for instance, and this is just so that, you know, it's clear there's nothing ordained about this, despite being a highly feminised workforce, it had a pretty aggressive leadership culture going on at the top. So it's the tone that you set, and I immediately set a tone that we're not aggressive with each other and that we're not blaming each other for stuff. We're actually all here to achieve the same goals and we will work together because that's how we'll be successful and because it'll make it a great place to work and that's how you get your people to work together and that's how you achieve goals. And so pretty soon you discover whether you've got a team that's prepared to walk that walk or not and those that aren't walk somewhere else. Yeah, it just reminds me of moving from a country high school to an all-girls school. You know, the girls in the country high school were constantly reluctant to put their hand up (laughs) to a Mm. bunch of very precocious young women and it was startling. Mm. And I think obviously we were teenagers, et cetera. But if you are in an environment where women are leading and are the majority, you do get a completely different environment. Yeah, yeah. And that is the only thing I guess I'd say about highly feminised workforces, at least traditionally. I don't think it was like that for me, certainly by the time I finished in human services, is that you might get women, which happens everywhere, who are just not confident that they're ready to step up to the next level. Whereas, I mean, it's I know it's a truism, but we all see it, is that men who've got, say, 50% of the capabilities that a job is asking for are willing to put their hand up and say they can give it a go, whereas women set ourselves a higher 
bar. And if we don't think we've already got experience in all the selection criteria, then I'm probably not ready for it. And so building women's confidence to feel that they actually either are ready for it or could pretty well grow into it is one of the things that I think it's important for leaders to invest in, especially if you notice that you've got more men applying for the promotions than women. Then you go, well, it's not that I've got a lack of capable women, I've got a lack of confident women, or I haven't invested in the women of the organisation to give them the skill development and the confidence that they need to succeed, or there's structural issues that are getting in the way. And structural issues, they're ones that are driven by outside forces, but we still live in a society where women are doing the bulk of the childcare and the bulk of the other caring work and the bulk of the domestic work. So if we create roles that don't allow a balance of work and family, then we'll be automatically cutting out a lot of women for whom their lives are such that they are doing the bulk of the family. I hope we're going to get to a state where there's just as many men agitating for part-time work and longer parental leave and meetings that all finish at five. That's my goal, but we're not there yet. And so it's been really important to me in my public service career to make sure that we create workplace practices that don't indirectly exclude women from more senior roles. What advice can you give women starting out in their leadership career? Well, back yourself is a good start. You know, there's a lot of talk goes on from the rest of the world that's always putting women down and criticising them and reducing them to how we look and, and not really giving women permission to speak. You know, women are always accused of speaking too much when any analysis of a mixed gender meeting will tell you men are doing nearly all the speaking. So, you know, don't listen to the negative talk from outside and back yourself and back your abilities and invest in them. It's worth investing in your own learning and development and growth. The second thing I'd say is to just observe how successful leaders, and they might be mostly men in your context, but observe how they influence others and how they present information and views. Women in meetings often present their views half apologetically and commence by saying something self-deprecating, whereas men are much more likely to present their views, not forcefully, not pushily, but just confidently that they have something worthwhile to contribute. And that how you present, we can learn a lot by looking at the men who we think are successful, not who are arrogant and hard to get along with, but who are successful at influencing how they comport themselves and adopting components of that that feel comfortable to the self. The third thing I'd say is don't pigeonhole yourself into whatever it is you're doing now. You're just going to move up that same career pathway. There are so many fantastic, interesting, wonderful things to do in the world and try a few of them because you just never know where you'll find your passion. You just never know which will be the thing that might take you out of your comfort zone, but you learn something great about yourself or what you love or what you can do that enriches your capabilities for the future. And probably the fourth thing I'd say is look after yourself. It's a long haul, a career. It's, you know, 40 or more years of your life and you need to sustain it. So 
look after your health and your sleep and your food and your exercise and your meditation and whatever else it is that keeps you sane and grounded and resilient for the long haul because it is a long haul and you want to enjoy it. And so it's not a waste to invest in your own well-being. In fact, it's a really great investment. Absolutely. Brilliant advice. I could not agree more. And I think sleep, food, exercise was a lesson I learned <laughs> late in my career. And I sometimes wonder how I got through some of those early 20s doing the exact yeah. opposite. Yeah. Renee Leon, thank you so much for your generous time, your incredible insights and your public service for all you've oh, it's done. it's been great. Through oh, your thank career. you. Look, and hope I'll continue to do for some time yet. And thanks, Helen. It's been great to talk. And I will drop into Bathurst and say hello. Please but I'm going do. through to see the crops in Grenfell. Yes, well, it's a beautiful part of the world. And I must say, one of the upsides of how much rain we've had is everything's really green. So it's very pretty and lovely to drive through at the moment. So I look forward to seeing you in Bathurst and been great to talk today. Thanks, Helen. Thank you very, very much. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.